This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey everyone, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm Howie Ryan. This episode, we're going to talk about the crime scene investigator, specifically what role they play, what it takes to become one, some of the training that they have to undergo. As we talk about it this week, I'm going to be joined by two very, very good friends of mine. Jim Molinero, with over 35 years in law enforcement and teaching in the specifically in the field of crime scene investigation and forensic investigations in general, and Nathan Lafave. Nathan, former program administrator at the National Forensic Academy at the University of Tennessee. He is now the owner of Forensic Training Source and the CEO of the Forensic Training Foundation, a not-for-profit which administers and provides training to law enforcement officers nationwide and worldwide. We are going to dive into what it takes to become a crime scene investigator. Um, we're going to talk about some of the difficulties of being a crime scene investigator. And then some, some other topics involved here will be, who is our crime scene investigators? Who are they? Are they sworn police officers? Or are they civilian crime scene techs? We have both. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of each. We're going to touch on supervision in the world of a crime scene investigation unit. How some agencies really have a handle on it. and other ones are kind of falling short. And why? Why that happens. So this episode is really for that CSI, that crime scene investigator, the people who want to be one, and even those who are just interested in how it goes. So I think you're going to find it interesting. Also, I want to mention coming up in future episodes, we are going to start the first part of a multi-part, uh, multi-episode series on interview and interrogation. And we have a really special guest for that, where we're going to dive into things like the O.J. Simpson case and his statements and kind of things that may have been missed during, during things that O.J. said during his interviews. And uh, we'll also double back on our continuing series in Conversations with American Heroes. We're going to talk to some people that were in our armed services going back as uh, the next couple episodes, we're going to talk to some Vietnam veterans, what they did in Vietnam, how they got involved in the service, obviously it was draft, but, and what they did in their time over in Vietnam and what they did afterwards and the lives that they led and, and uh, pay honor to some of those heroes that, that stood up when we asked them to. So sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation that I'm about to have here with Jim and Nathan 
about the world of the crime scene investigator. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-age children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, and your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, we're lucky to have with us Nathan Lefave. He is the CEO of the Forensic Training Foundation, and he is also the owner of Forensic Training Source. Nathan, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Um, we got to know Nathan several years ago when he was working at the National Forensic Academy. Uh, everybody that has either been through the NFA or has heard about the NFA knows Nathan and knows he was uh, one of the people... Uh, responsible for making it what it was and is today, and uh, he has moved uh, on to start his own company. And Nathan, can you just give us a a background of um, how you got where you are today? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, my background is kind of unique in that uh, I have a lot of experience uh, with forensic training. However, I was never a crime scene investigator, and I don't have any law enforcement experience. So. Out of college, I ended up with a, a master's degree in elementary education, and I was teaching fourth grade. And uh, in 2001, the University of Tennessee's Institute for Public Service was uh, creating a program called the National Forensic Academy. It was a 10-week intensive hands-on experience for crime scene investigators and forensic practitioners. And it was kind of a response to cases like the O.J. Simpson case, where forensic investigation, forensic evidence had began it had uh, really begun to take on a, a focus in the media and the realization was that there wasn't a lot of uh, standardized training for people that were in that discipline so the forensic academy set out to uh, kind of create an inter interdisciplinary approach to crime scene investigation and to standardize that and so in 2002 uh, in during the fourth session of the national forensic academy i joined that program and um, even though I didn't have background in law enforcement or crime scene investigation, I found myself uh, developing a network of contacts and of instructors that were really highly regarded and, and trusted as some of the best names in forensic investigation, not only as practitioners, but also as uh, instructors. So I was there for nearly 10 years and ultimately left. I was lured away by uh, a, a training company for forensic or I'm sorry a uh, forensic technology company and uh, ultimately decided to get back into training and so that's when I began forensic training source and then ultimately uh, started the forensic training foundation which operates as a nonprofit so currently I work with uh, forensic experts in a number of different disciplines and we deliver very high quality hands-on training for crime scene investigators, forensic practitioners all over the country. Have you found around uh, the country the need and especially the desire from crime scene investigators has grown through the years? Uh, absolutely. I, I believe it has. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, interest in pop culture with a number of television shows that has kind of created a, 
a, a large number of people wanting to come into the field. Yeah. And, uh, and then also, you know, people want to do a good job at their job and suddenly there's training that's available. That's, you know, whether it's general crime scene investigator training, uh, forensic training, understanding how to manage a crime scene, or whether it's specialized uh, courses such as, you know, shooting reconstruction or bloodstain pattern analysis, people want to know the best way to do their job. So would it be safe to say that you took the model that you developed at the NFA, the National Forensic Academy, and then molded it or refined it to something that now exists as the Forensic Training Source or Forensic Training Source Foundation? Yeah, I think that that would absolutely be fair to say. Um, we definitely tried to take what works. And then, uh, you know, of every single course, we have every single person provide us feedback in a, in a very detailed evaluation. And myself and all the instructors that teach um, I'll go through that very carefully, and and that information has been used to to develop the courses over the last uh, really uh, sixteen years that I've been involved in this. What would you say is one of the key aspects that separates your training, the training you provide, versus training from other potential vendors or possible vendors? I think there's a number of things, uh, and I'll boil it down to just a couple. But one is the instructors. Uh, we don't hire professional instructors. We hire professional practitioners, people who are doing the job that recognize the challenges that the people that take the courses face in their jobs. And, um, and we, we really make it realistic and we go to great lengths to make it hands-on. So we go beyond the theory into the practice and the feedback that we get is that, um, People feel a whole lot more comfortable when they have to investigate a shooting scene if they've already had hands-on all of the different substrates that they may encounter in a, in a shooting scene because of the kind of training that we provide. We might as well broach this topic now because you mentioned something earlier. The pop culture of the TV shows. You know, you, you hear people talk all the time about CSI effect and this and that. I have an opinion. I mean, my opinion has been through the years, there, you know, there's a lot of legal people who say, oh, it really doesn't have a factor in a jury. I don't think that's true. I think it does have a factor in the jury. I think they do watch these TV shows. Uh, I think their expectations are a little off from what really happens in, in the world of crime scene investigation, you know, lab results and uh, DNA results. And, you know, in a television show, they're getting the DNA results by the second round of commercials. And then you see CSI investigators on these shows wearing body armor, kicking doors in and, uh, you know, locking people up. I get it. It's Hollywood. It has to be that way. It's an entertainment factor. But it does a little bit of uh, I guess, swaying people's opinion. Have you felt, either of you guys, have you felt you've seen any of that along the way? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, again, this is, I have an interesting perspective because I've not been a practitioner before, but I get to talk to a lot of people from a lot of different areas, a lot of different um, communities that, that do deal with this. And I've kind of come up with an, an answer because I just had somebody yesterday uh, ask me this very question. You know, is it just like CSI? Is it just like that show? And I explained that there are certain things about the shows that are realistic, um, certain things that are not, namely the speed at which results come back. And then also I think um, the general public has this perception that any public agency or any governmental 
agency has limitless resources. And so just like any other discipline or any other field, they have to develop budgets that they have to stick by. And those budgets may not always allow for the types of equipment and the types of testing that you see on these shows. You know, I always say to people that ask, uh, in my experience, a lot of the technology that we see is available. It may not be as fast as what we see on television, and it may not be uh, affordable to a lot of law enforcement departments that would would be thrilled to use it, but they just don't have that option. The unrealistic timeline aspect is one aspect, but it extends to much, uh, much further than that. The general unrealistic expectations on the part of a juror that every case is going to contain fingerprint evidence, every case is going to contain DNA evidence. And what we're finding, or what I'm seeing at least, is that jurors, if they don't see that type of evidence, are less likely to believe in what is being said or what is being presented on the part of a crime scene investigator. So absent that information, they don't think that the investigators have done a sufficient enough job to prove their point or prove their case. Right. Well, and I think, you know, that's that's a that's a whole element that we try to bring into every single course, whether it's a basic crime scene management course or specifically or even more importantly, advanced training that we provide because you know, we find that people come in and they go through a 40 hour course, they understand how to analyze blood stains or they understand how to analyze bullet defects. However, they need to be able to tell the story of that crime scene because you have educators or you have not educators, you have jurors that feel that they are educated because they've seen these shows. And so you really, as an element, as a piece of the training that we provide, we really need to show how do you communicate the importance of what you've done? How do you communicate the investigative strategy that you've taken, especially in light of what people feel like they think they understand because they've watched Hollywood television shows? So you take professionals and then you train them and then you really expect them to go out and then train the jurors in what they've learned and what, what they find that a crime scene means or in some instances doesn't mean with respect to a case. Right. I think that that has to be something that's always on the mind of, of instructors in, the, in this field and always on the mind of people that are practitioners in the field. I think that's a critical point. Back when we were doing the other crime scene schools earlier in our careers, um, one of the things we put in play was a mock court situation. Uh, and I think when we first started doing that, uh, we kind of looked at each other like, wow, this has to be an integral part of this thing. We need to expand this a little bit more. They are clearly not used to getting up and explaining what it is they do. Um, you know, we say to every class, I said it today, today to the class we, we're teaching today, that you can do the greatest report in the world. You can do all the work uh, just perfectly, and you can write the greatest report. If you can't get up in front of the jury, it's a bit of a fail because there's a couple of things you have to remember. The jury is not going to read your entire report. They're not going to be permitted to. Uh, the, the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, yeah, they're going to get to see it. But they're going, to pro they're going to allow bits and pieces of what you've done to see. So you have to be able to, one, educate the jury to a bit, for a bit, and teach them what it is you do, first of all, and then work into what your findings and your conclusions are and what they mean 
uh, with, in, in respect to the totality of the case. And if you educate them, I have found, if you educate them, they tend to believe you more. Well, and the end game actually is the trial. You have to literally assume that every case is going to go to trial and everything that you do is going to have to be explained to someone who either doesn't know what it is that you do or has an over expectation or over expectation of what it is that you do. So even though you have a, a substantial or a high quality work product in the way of a report and results, your ability to transfer or transpose that into something that means something to someone, as I said, who has an expectation or who doesn't know anything really is the, is the, the last 10 yards of that 100 yard run that you're making towards the goal line. You need to be able to get to that end goal line mm -hmm. and have the jurors believe in the end that what you're saying is credible, what you're saying is impartial, and what you're saying is accurate. And I think they want to learn. And they want to you're, learn, You're yes. taking them out of their day. They're doing their civic duty, but they're, you're taking them out of their day. They have to sit there. <laughs> Let's face it, some of them don't want to be there. But I think a lot of them, when you, when you do crimes against persons, homicides, you know, sexual assaults, aggravated assaults, trials like that, it gets somewhat interesting once they get involved in hearing the evidence and hearing the testimony. But I think they also want to learn. And if you can teach them, I think that's, that's a good I thing. do. I, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, my experience, again, with training is that, you know, a lot of times we have media coverage. And we have, uh, you know, media outlets that come in and they interview instructors and they interview participants. We get to spend a lot of time, you know, when I was with the Forensic Academy, 10 weeks with uh, people that were participating in the course. In our other courses now, we spend a week with them. We get to see people as they understand what they're doing. You know, we see them as they really have this new understanding of these disciplines that they're learning about. However, for me as an administrator with these types of trainings over the last several years, my, my disappointment came when I would see somebody that would interact with media. They were being asked questions about what are you learning? These are the same people that I've been working with over the span of a week or 10 weeks. And I, I hear the passion in their voice and I hear them understanding what they're doing with a bullet defect or a bloodstain pattern. And then when they see that camera pointed at them, they lose that fire and they lose that confidence in presenting what they're doing. And, and I, you know, my concern is, is that not the same dynamic that happens on the, on the stand when a course oh, ultimately yeah. goes to, to trial? And I think that's why for us, as we've developed advanced courses, we understand that people have the prerequisites. They, they've come in, they under, they've taken a basic shooting reconstruction course or a basic bloodstain course. And we really focus on the academia of it. And we really focus on the presentation of it. How do you tell the story and how do you present yourself confidently and the information that you've gained? Because you know what's going on. You're trained. You understand it. Now, now convey that in a way that instills confidence. You've said it before, Jimmy. You said it before. You know, part of your job is to be a professional investigator. At the very end, like you just said, that last 10 yards, your job then is to become a professional witness. Absolutely. And get that yes. point across. Yep, you have you can't you have to deliver that message at the end, and you have to deliver it to individual jurors who hear you differently. Each person hears you a little differently. You're delivering the same message, but you kind of have to tailor that to each individual person. So as you're doing your testimony and as you're explaining what it is that you're doing, you need to be reading them. You need to be getting some kind of feedback back from them to know that you're successfully getting your point across. So if we go back to your training again. 
that becomes a critical element in almost all of your training, correct? Whether it's a basic course or whether now as you're rolling out advanced courses, those advanced courses, it becomes a component of them, correct? Absolutely. I mean, what they learn has no value if they can't communicate it effectively. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about crime scene units as a whole. We, we, we talked a little bit about the individual. Let's talk about the unit. What, um, what have you guys seen nationwide as some of the strength, strengths and weaknesses of units? And then I'll, I have my opinions as well, but anybody? Well, from, from budgets you, to whatever. When you think of a unit, it's, it's, a, it's an entity that's comprised of individual crime scene investigators. Those crime scene investigators may have individu individual passions, but those passions are really controlled by the operation of the unit. So if you look back, and if we go back you, 2002 to now 2018, so over the 16 years, what have you seen in the way of a response for organizations to provide training to their people, and then the response of the individual people to the opportunity to receive that type of, of training? That's actually a really interesting way to ask that question, because I think um, there are cultures within the units that I think have driven the way that they respond to this increased scrutiny and, and this um, interest in forensic investigation. You have to explain what you mean by that. What do you mean by the culture within the unit? So you have, I mean, I've found that we have people that come to the National Forensic Academy that attend our one-week courses. And we found that crime scene investigation can be viewed very differently. You know, there's there's a huge, I don't know, chasm between how some agencies view crime scene investigation and the individuals in those crime scene investigation units um, compared to um, other agencies. So in some agencies, we found that crime scene investigation is a unit that you promote to, that you aspire to, that you train for. You re it requires advanced training, specialized training. Other agencies, we find that crime scene investigative units are the places where you put people that are being punished for not doing a good job in their other position. Mm -hmm. And so you have that variation. Then now, let you me have, ask you this, though. What does yeah. that tell you about the supervisors, the administration? What does it tell you about an administration of an agency that looks at your crime scene investigation unit as a dumping ground? To me, it tells me they clearly do not have a grasp on the entire investigative process. And one of the most critical aspects of the investigative process, the, the crime scene aspect of it, you can, there are men, multiple components to any type of investigation, but one of the critical elements is the crime scene portion, because in the end, the crime scene portion is about the evidence. And the evidence, I hate to sound like a cliche, but the evidence kind of speaks for itself. It takes you where you need to go as you're doing the investigation. So what they don't have is an appreciation of one of the most integral and essential components to getting a final understanding of what took place and who was involved and what people were uh, responsible for certain actions. So they're kind of missing a huge portion of the big picture, if not the entire big picture. Or they're just not valuing it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I think that a lot of agencies feel like their detectives are trained in interrogation and that's enough. We'll get our, we'll get confessions, yeah. you know? And there's, there's not the um, focus on the physical evidence that we're training people to uh, observe and collect and document. And so um, I think that there's, there's a huge difference in the way uh, people view crime scene investigation. 
All right. So how about how about the individuals themselves? So the, the agency, let's assume that they get them to yeah. one of your courses for what for whatever their motivation is. Mm -hmm. Money is obviously a driving factor, mm -hmm. but let's assume money isn't a driving factor. There are those agencies that send people to crime scene courses because they feel they have an obligation to train their people. There's other agencies that feel they send people to crime scene courses and they're actually doing you a favor by doing that. So now flip to the other side, the people that are showing up, what, what is their perspective for why they're there and what they hope to get out of one of your courses? I think the majority of people recognize the need for their role in society. You know, I mean, our, our society kind of relies on people willing to take a look at what the the worst of us can do to each other and so i think those people are driven by that that innate uh desire to help and i think those folks take pride in bettering themselves and understanding as much as they can i mean we you know you guys instruct you've seen it i mean people are excited when they leave at the end of a week and they have a new skill set they're excited when they can go back to a cold case that has been with them for five or 10 years and say, I have a new tool that I can go back and apply to this. And um, I mean, for us, there's nothing better than, than hearing the stories after somebody's gone back, whether it's shortly after they go back or years after they've gone back to their communities and their jobs and to say, hey, you wouldn't believe the case we were just able to close because of what you taught us in that training. It's funny you say that. I can't. I can't. I can't tell you how many people after they've gone through, say, a shooting class, will look at you and say, "You know, I wish I could go back to this case or this case or this case, and do some of this stuff on it because I have a feeling it. We could have added a lot to it, and um, that's very interesting. You brought up the people. Um, let's hit the topic because I'm sure there's a lot of th thoughts on this out there uh, between. Or not between, because I don't want to pit one against the other. Your thoughts on sworn personnel and civilian personnel within crime scene? Anybody? Uh, I think they both have a desire to do the best job possible. But I think their motivation can be slightly different. Because they come from two different schools, so to speak. One, being enlisted, they've probably occupied some other type of position in that organization prior to ending up in crime scene. Most of your civilians usually get brought in as crime scene investigators. So they're more pure, so to speak, in the discipline of crime scene investigation. Whereas the enlisted come, come with a little more of an investigative background or a little more of patrol experience background. So they're more seasoned in the sense of dealing with the public, of dealing with the horrors that associate a crime scene versus the civilians who come in and basically are getting their first exposure to all of that from a crime scene standpoint. And I think both of those, while they both want to learn and do the best possible, their, their point or their starting point, they're two different starting points. Yeah, I think, I think that's very true. I think, I think you have the, um, and what I've seen too, as, as new programs are, are popping up that are providing people with master's degrees in criminal investigation, um, you have sworn and you have unsworn. And then without, within the civilian or unsworn, you have people that are hired in with a high school diploma and they learn everything on the job. And then you have others that come in with a master's degree. And then now you're seeing that and you're, 
the way that they're interacting and relating to the law enforcement agency as a whole can be very different. So you, when you have those civilian units, I think you can you can run into a dynamic where there's a lack of respect for the civilian that came into this right out of high school and for the law enforcement that are sworn that have the real life experience of dealing with the human element that law enforcement has to deal with i think there there exists the potential for resentment of these civilian folks that come in with a master's degree that are going to start to tell them how to handle evidence and things that they may or may not be doing correctly one of the other things too is you know when you're talking about the law enforcement dynamic uh i think what i take from that and what i think as well is you know, you cut your teeth in investigations or you cut your teeth in your interaction with the public as, and when you're in patrol. And that's where you're starting to see your first uh, exposure to people lying to you, just trying to get over on you, to this, that. You, you, you may be literally in physical altercations. You build up, you cut your teeth on your perception of people. Right. I think the civilian entity does not, is not afforded that. And that, and that, and that is a big deal. That's a big deal. However, like you're saying, the degree, I find a lot of the civilian folks, their enthusiasm is when they come in is off the charts. And that's yeah. a great thing. Sometimes, however, they get exposed to some very jaded people that have been in an agency for a long period of time. The other thing is, and I just heard this recently, is one came out and said, because I asked this person how, how they, they were new, they were civilian, how's it going, how do you like it? The answer was, the first and only answer was very telling to me my salary is not commensurate with my degree <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to say i didn't want to say anything because it was like well you know you've never done this before you can have all the degrees in the world you still have never done it and then you can walk out with all the degrees hang them all over the wall they're not going to let you just go do a homicide scene by yourself there's got to be a degree of experience and i think nationwide we have to do a better job of blending these because I think both sides can help each other quite a bit. I think the civilians that come out of a, a good training program can offer a lot and just in their enthusiasm can be contagious and wanting to do better can be contagious. But at the other side, I think the sworn people can school them up on some of the other issues and the human nature factors and that being on guard a little bit and don't just believe everything that you see. Uh, working through some of these problem sets. So I think they can be, do a better job of helping one another. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're I think you're right. And I think just like anything else, this isn't unique to law enforcement. You have, you have folks with different backgrounds that have to work together. And there are, it, it kind of comes down to personality. You know, I mean, you have sworn folks that are open to working with people that have advanced degrees in, in crime scene investigation. And, but you also need to have civilians with little to no experience that are willing to learn from those that have real life experience. Yeah. And um, so there's no, I don't think that there's any right or wrong. You know, I think that I've seen civilian units that have been handled incredibly well, that are respected by their agencies, and they have a great working relationship. I've seen other agencies that have all sworn, and, and that's a different culture, but it can still work. So... It can work. I just recently uh, dealt with a few guys we you know in one of the courses we just did from the Rhode Island State Police. Uh, it's a small unit. It's a small state, granted, 
but it is a very tight organization, extremely professional, very squared away, very regimented. They have a unit of all sworn people, and it works really well. They are, um, I was very impressed with how they're set up, uh, the knowledge base and the training that they all get. I mean, it's easily manageable. You, you know, you transition over to something like Philly or even NYPD is so big. Um, you know, the budgets are there, but you have so many people, it's a little bit more difficult to manage. What I want to ask you now is the role of supervision in the crime scene unit. That's another topic that gets talked about a lot. We joke about it quite a bit. In a lot of agencies, you'll see that people get parachuted in. And people that are on the job know what I mean when I say parachuted in. You know, a chief, a captain, a major, whatever it may be, may have a buddy or somebody. Somebody's up for promotion. We have a spot where you can land. And it may be running a forensic unit or a crime scene unit. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a bomb unit. It could be a... Uh, not, not, you know, it could be a SWAT team. I've seen some pretty ridiculous promotions and transfers. What is your opinion on how that affects the overall operation of the unit? Maybe unit integrity, maybe confidence, maybe morale. Well, that person really has two roles when they come in. And how they come in is, is probably critical. You can have the person who comes in and realizes, I don't know anything about what the unit I'm in right now. If they understand that and approach everything from that point and learn from the people that are in there, then they're likely to be much more successful as that unit supervisor now than someone who comes in, has to sort of, sort of make their mark or just change things because wherever they came from before, this is the way things were done there. And a crime scene unit doesn't, it doesn't work the same way. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of interaction between the people in a crime scene unit and understanding what took place and carrying out their job. So the role of a supervisor, it's extremely important. One that he understands exactly what his people do and one that he, if he came from a spot that doesn't have a crime scene background, he understands what his limitations are in now supervising that type of unit. His obligation really before supervising is learning what it is his people do. And if possible, actually becoming a crime scene investigator himself to the point where he now avails himself of the same knowledge and training that the people he has working for also have. That's a long, that's a long uh, transition though, to get some of that, that training and experience up. And it's a hard thing to do being in a supervisory role. So I, let me ask you this question. What do you think about them being in crime scenes? They get dropped in. They supervisors don't know. Yeah. in physical crime scenes. Well, specifically supervisors that have never done this, have no idea what's going on. They get put in this position. It's difficult. It usually comes with a promotion, so they're not going to say no. Here they are. I'm a new lieutenant in charge of a unit, and we have a homicide down in a, in a, in a house or a housing project or something like that, and there they are standing right in the middle. My take on it is the general population forgets that you walk in that scene. You are now a witness. You're a witness. If you're seen in the scene, if you're on a crime scene entry log, you are a potential witness. And if somebody calls you, they have the right to ask you a lot of these questions. Why are you even there? Well, because somebody made me the supervisor. What, what's your training and background? What do you actually bring to the table? I think agencies miss that part. They, they put these people in and somebody in some certified public manager course or something somewhere like to fill everybody's head with the idea that a manager can manage everywhere. What do you, what's your opinion on that? Well, managing people and managing a crime scene are two different things. So managing people from an administrative standpoint, 
they're probably more than qualified to do that. But managing people in the performance of their duties within a crime scene, they're more than likely not even remotely qualified to do that. And so they probably shouldn't be in there. So they not only probably just shouldn't be in there. Their role should be something else that day. Their role should be getting their people what they need, getting them the equipment they need, making sure they have everything they need to process that scene, creating a little bit of a buffer between them and everything else that's going on around that crime scene. They have much greater value in that role than getting down into the nitty gritty of what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Did you do this yet? When they don't even have an understanding of what those questions mean. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, as far as training, you know, we started off talking about training. What is your opinion on, uh, I have a big time opinion on this. I really believe that agencies should have a defined training matrix. I think if they do that, that training opportunities don't get lost in budget shifts or reallocation of money. I think if you put that training matrix out and it's in place, and the agency subscribes to this and they, and they buy in, they have a buy in. I want to keep my people there for a while. And I have an, an obligation as an organization to provide an opportunity for professional development. And uh, I don't see it a lot. You well, see the, a lot of turnover and they are, they're dumping money in training and then they're bouncing somebody out of a unit to go somewhere else. And I, I just get very frustrated with that. What do you guys think? Well, they don't spend their money very wisely. So. You have money to spend on equipment and supplies, and you have money to spend on training. The equipment and supplies don't mean anything if the people using them don't know what to do with that equipment and supplies. So really, the matrix, a training matrix, gives them a framework or a blueprint Mm -hmm. for continued success. It moves their people along in their knowledge. It moves their people along in what the next step is going to be for what they're going to learn in this area of crime scene investigation. So if you have a training matrix and you follow that matrix, it should be easy to move within that matrix to companies like Forensic Training Source so that you can step-by-step provide your people a systematic way to move forward and be successful. And Nathan, one of the things um, I want you to talk about, if you would, is bringing it to them, the concept of bringing it to them. I mean, you know, there's some agencies that can afford to send somebody away, and there's a lot of agencies that kind of shy away from that from that uh, idea of sending an officer away. They got to pay per diem, travel, hotel, sure. this, that, and the other thing. How have you seen it work out when you're doing these deliverables on site? Well, you know, it kind of goes with what you were just talking about as far as the training matrix and all that is that you have such a varied approach to to this discipline and that, that conveys to the way people are trained. And uh, so by bringing training to locations around the country you're able to really control the cost reduce the cost to a law enforcement agency to get their people trained and sometimes that's just that's just enough for them to actually pull the trigger and and send somebody to to train that they might not because truth be told a course fee is a fraction of the total cost of training if you have to send somebody to a city across the country to participate in a week of training you have airfare and per diems and hotels the course fee itself is a small portion of their expense so when we take the training to an area we are significantly reducing the amount of investment required for law enforcement agencies to get their people trained in these different disciplines so uh it, it really we see it working well you know we have 
people that travel short distances to the the host location and we're honestly working on kind of a concept of regional hubs so that so that we work with an agency or a facility that law enforcement the law enforcement community nearby understands that high quality training is going to come out to this location once twice three times a year and they can count on on getting some high quality training there and agencies can count on it whether they're bringing new people on board that need very basic training just to come up to speed on it or whether they have uh, advanced folks that have a lot of experience that really need to sink their teeth into a more substantial course that specializes in a particular discipline have you found that those agencies respond to that that business plan so to speak they do i mean you have two different types of agencies you have hosting agencies around the country how do they get into that how do they, how do they the host? host yeah what's what's the you know there may be a lot of people that are going to listen to this and they're going to say geez you know my we don't get a lot of training. I, you oh, know, sure. Hosting is an option. I really should look yeah. into that. How do we? How do we do that? Well, they just they just have to find us at forensictrainingsource.com, and they can uh, you know all of our information is there. They can reach out, and and what we do is we make hosting something easy for law enforcement agencies to do. We know that law enforcement agencies don't want to handle other agencies' money. They don't want to have to keep a track record of that. We know they don't want to hand, handle uh, registration. We know they don't want to deal with any contracts. So the way we structure our training as a host agency is provided with a list of requirements, classroom space, old cars, things that don't cost them money that are easy for them to, to arrange for us in whatever location they're at. And then uh, they help us market the course. They use their network, uh, all the people that they work with in that region to make sure that they know about the course Forensic Training Source handles all of the registrations online. It records all the, uh, it collects all of the funds, all the course fees. And uh, instead of there being any contract that puts anybody on the hook for having to pay for a course, everybody understands, the host understands that they have until a certain date to meet a minimum number of registrations. And if we can't meet those, then we either put our heads together and figure out a way to make it happen, or uh, we have to we may have to postpone or cancel the course. So we have developed this training concept to fit law enforcement from around the country. You know, forensic training may not be universal, but the way law enforcement agencies deal with their money kind of is. And yeah. so uh, so we, we try to take that all into consideration so that this is a very easy transaction for somebody that wants to, to, to host courses. And those that do host it, this is a great feather in their cap. I mean, we're bringing internationally recognized instructors to their backyard right to their front door and we're putting on training that not everybody gets to have and so uh, by bringing it around the country we make it a whole lot more accessible can you go through some of the courses that you offer sure i mean we've had a couple that have really emerged as our as our popular courses we have uh, uh shooting is a reconstruction 40 hours of basic shooting incident reconstruction we um, we do a 40-hour basic bloodstain pattern analysis course. That's kind of the the elements of that are kind of dictated by governing bodies like the International Association for Bloodstain Pattern Analysts, IBPA. Um, so we we take all those uh, factors, that kind of matrix, into consideration. Um, one of the courses that we have that is very popular, especially for uh, once people have had it, they they realize just how incredible and how valuable it is is crime scene photography and i don't know if we've talked about that or, yet or not but 
crime scene photography is a unique uh, discipline within crime scene investigation because of its universal nature. I so, think it's one of the biggest weaknesses out there. It I really think they is. All need I it. mean, that's what we found is that crime scene investigation, uh, crime scene photography, people think, I mean, we've had people arrive at courses and explain to us that they use their iPhones for <laughs> crime scene photography. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, 2018, that that's still happening. Well, it's an it, extremely undervalued uh, uh, skill set. It is. I mean, you have people that feel like they know how to take photographs. I I put it on the green. You know, if they're not using an iPhone, they have an, an, a digital SLR. They put it on the green box and yeah. they just go. I photoed my kids at Christmas. I'm good. Yeah, exactly. People don't understand how much they don't know about photography. That's for sure. And still photography is pretty universal to the work of a crime scene investigator. Let, let me just inter interject one second because on this topic and Jimmy, you're better at teaching photography than I am. There's a lot of people out there like I can take the photos, right? I know how to get it done. I know how to work my way through the camera to get what I need. Right. So I'm a competent photographer in that respect. I can't teach it. And I think one of the things that forensic training source brings is two of the best instructors I've ever seen in this field. Every time I hear them speak, I learn something from them. But I think the skill of a teacher in that field is so critical, and especially in the day and age when all these three D laser scanning devices are coming out, and people are kind of relying on that more. Those, sure. uh, you know, the, the the instructors that you use and that I've met are second to none. Well, try and think of any crime scene from the most basic to the simplest, a property crime, to the most horrific, a murder. Think of that either end and anything in between. Think of any one of those where you're not pulling a camera out and taking a photograph, at least one photograph of something, if not multiple or hundreds of photographs. Mm -hmm. So that skill set is required across the board in crime scene investigation and in doing, in doing the work that we do. And we've gotten since, you know, since the teaching and everything, we've obviously opened a, a Highlands Forensics, a consulting company. And what, one of the things we've seen in getting a lot of the work from around the country sent to us for a review, we talk about it all the time, is I can't believe the photography. Lacking. What, what are the, yeah, it's very, lacking quite a bit, not a little. In some areas, really substantially lacking. And you kind of scratch your head and you say, what were they thinking? Two reasons. One, there's not enough. And enough two, photographs, you mean? Enough, yeah, just right. just enough photographs uh, showing different things. And two, what they are photographing is not done well. And then you'll get the occasional case where you're like, wow, this person really knocked it out of the park. And you find that they went to training, additional training. Right. And they, and they took an interest. And that's one of the things I like about the instructor's that you use on on photographers they really get people interested well yeah i mean photography john and carrie who teach that are outstanding photography is very technical they might as well tell everybody who they are john williams and uh, and carrie mcclary are both out of uh south carolina i've worked with them since uh 2002 when i first started at the national forensic academy and just Two of the Truly nicest people you ever meet. Outstanding instructors. They are. They're fine people. I mean, they're just, they're the kind of people you just enjoy spending time with. They're knowledgeable about photography. I mean, 
the conversations they could have with us about the technical aspects of photography are mind numbing. Mm -hmm. And yet, even with that mind numbing knowledge, they have the ability to relate it to the people in the class in a way that is relevant mm -hmm. to their jobs and in a way that doesn't feel like death by forensic course, you know, a technical course. And this isn't just for John and Carrie. I think, I, I think you asked me earlier about what forensic training source, you know, what's our secret, you know, what makes us good. And, um, my background isn't law enforcement. It's, it's education. And in my years at the national forensic Academy and now with, with my own organizations, my skill set is observing people that come in to be trained and people that come in to do the training. And we've had some very highly credentialed people that have come through that are highly regarded within their fields. They've written books. They're considered experts without question. Nobody, nobody questions their credentials. And yet you can put them in front of a classroom and it can turn into an absolute disaster. And so I think that's the one thing that I feel like I've, brought to this is that I've been able to observe that and I've been able to after those 10 years with the other program I've been able to cherry pick the ones that have the credentials there's no question the people that that instruct for forensic training source are outstanding and they're practitioners they're still doing the work they're still current on the challenges and the technology that's available in their field and they just they have the ability they're just nice people that enjoy sharing their knowledge with people and they take complex topics like photography and bloodstain pattern analysis and shooting reconstruction and they have a genuine desire to share that they're not hoarding this information because they're the expert and they want everybody to come to them they're sharing it and they're learning from people as they do it and so um i think that's one of the interesting things i've observed with all the people that instruct for us is that, uh, and they don't have a chance to interact with each other very much. You know, they're, I have shooting instructors that come to one class, photography to another, blood to another. Yet they still, I've heard this in almost every single class, that they look forward to what they're going to learn from the participants in the course. It's not an arrogant, I'm better than you, and the reason I'm here is because I'm better than you, and I'm going to teach you how much better than you I am. Instead, it's, this is what I've learned through my career. I've faced the same challenges that you do. This happens to be an area that I have made an, uh, you know, a, a mark in and that I'm an expert in, and I want to share it with you. So it's, the training isn't that of overwhelming the student. It's giving them the ability, when they leave, to have as much of an understanding of what that course provided and then give them the opportunity, and correct me if I'm wrong, to then still tap into those instructors oh sure after they leave that 40 hour week and one day one week one month one year later they find themselves standing at a scene scratching their head and just wondering all right what would this instructor do or how should this be handled does forensic training source kind of have a a back end sure. to the training for lack it's, of a it's better very informal but it's something that i've i've done in my my thing whether it's with Forensic Training Source or even back at the National Forensic Academy, it was connecting people. My strength is, or my, the only thing I have to offer is connecting people. The network. Yeah, the network. And so we teach forensic, you know, shooting reconstruction and bloodstain pattern analysis. I don't know if you guys can think of a single case where that's the only discipline required in a course or in an investigation. Oh, no. 
So these are elements, these are tools in the practitioner's toolbox. However, you know, you're going to end up dealing with uh, bullet defects in a case that you may also need to talk to an anthropologist about. And so we try to make people understand that Forensic Training Source has just taught you a bloodstain pattern analysis course. However, we have experts that you, you enjoyed these instructors. We've got experts in all the different disciplines. And so don't ever hesitate to reach out. There's no reason that a crime scene investigation has to happen in a vacuum. Why would that ever happen? And so um, I remember sitting at dinner on Christmas Eve one, one night and uh, getting a call from uh, an investigator in Florida who said, I am standing at a scene right now and we have this very unusual fracture pattern, blunt force trauma to this person's skull. And I know it's Christmas Eve, but is there anybody that you can put us in touch with that can maybe help us before we start to move things around here? And I was able to reach out to uh, Steve Sims, actually, who was in Pennsylvania at the time at Mercyhurst College. And he was willing to call that guy. And so the feedback that we got later on, the, the fact that somebody at a crime scene at nine o'clock on Christmas Eve night could call me and I could put them in touch with an anthropologist to help them deal with fracture patterns in somebody's skull um, thousands of miles away. That that's the kind of that's the win. That's the kind of thing that we want to offer to everybody that that we that we work with. So you give them trying. real real time solutions to real time problems if that turns out to be the case. Absolutely, to the best of our ability, we do. Yeah. And that lends itself to one of the things we say in a lot of the classes we do, and I've heard Johnny Carey say it, and uh, and you know, uh, Todd Crosby and everybody. You, in this line of work, you better be mission-oriented. You got to get it done. And, and a lot of times in order to get it done, you have to go outside your little circle. Mm -hmm. Your unit, maybe even your agency, maybe even your state. And you have to find the people. Because at the end of the day, when the crime scene tape gets cut down, you need to have the answers. And nobody else is going to do it. You're the one with the honor of going underneath that yellow tape and working what what is beyond that that tape there and if you're not mission oriented that means you're not willing to reach out to the other experts so everybody that is listening to this think about what nathan said there you know there are networks out there and uh and through your training and whatnot take advantage of your networks and, and reach out to some of these professionals these professionals didn't get to be where they are by being secretive and holding everything close to the vest. Right. They're all mission-oriented people, too. Right? I mean, sometimes it's the instructor's calling to say, hey, I'm dealing with a case mm -hmm. and I need help in a different discipline. So none of our instructors that we use feel like they are, you know, some crime scene investigator extraordinaire yeah. that doesn't need help sometimes. I've been doing this 30 years. I still call John Williams and ask him camera questions and... He is right on top of it every time. He gives me the answers immediately. Yeah. Well, you can have pride in what you do, and you can have pride in your agency, but you still have to have a certain amount of humbleness to be able to ask for help if you need that help. I think our instructors personify that, and that's that's what makes them great instructors, too, is that as soon as you decide that you don't need help anymore, that's one day past the time you should have left. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, you say it every time. The day where we don't learn something from the students in a class is the day we lose the right to to stand up here in front of you. Yeah, I mean that's you, and that's so. very true. And we do learn something from every class, every single class. It may be something tiny. It may be something they don't even realize they've taught us. 
but you pick up these little things. There's so much experience out there that everybody really needs to kind of open your mind and, and, and take advantage of some of that experience. Um, I want to thank Nathan for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, and hopefully there's a lot of folks in the, in the field out there that are going to listen to this. And Nathan, how do they reach out to you? How do they reach out and learn more about both the foundation and, and your training? Uh, I mean, the main way uh, is through our website, which is www.forensictrainingsource.com. It's kind of a long URL, but it's forensictrainingsource.com. Uh, on that website, they can they can sign up for our newsletter, which we, we do not inundate people's inboxes with emails, but we do make people aware of new courses as they come out. Um, they can also just call. I mean, they can call me, 678 744 9090 that web's that phone number is all over the website as well so um and without locking you into dates right now yeah you have some things up on the site just what are the topics that are out there now yeah well and the, the we started talking about the different type of uh courses so shooting reconstruction blood stain pattern analysis crime scene photography um we can customize courses because of our network of experts and all the different things and we've just recently rolled out a 40-hour advanced shooting incident reconstruction course that is already very popular and uh, so we're looking for hosts and we're looking for um participants and so uh currently we have a number of uh shooting reconstruction courses that are up and others that are in development along the lines of photography and bloodstain in particular do you have any ideas for any new courses that you might be uh thinking about rolling out in 2019 well next year <laughs> the challenge to forensic investigation is the emerging technology. So there's always new technologies. Um, a couple of things that we've talked about um, working on are things like drone photography, you know, so many crime scene photos. Again, this is coming back to photography in a way, but um, a lot of crime scene photos, aerial photography that was required in the past required firing up a helicopter and spending a lot of resources, burning through a lot of resources to take photos that honestly were not necessarily of the highest quality. Mm -hmm. So now we're able to get, I mean, what's available to law enforcement agencies are proper uh, approaches to photography, aerial photography that give you high quality photographs using drones for a fraction of the, the cost of what they've had in the past with, with helicopters and aircraft. So um, we're really excited about looking into um, a drone program. Drone, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, drones for uh, for CSI, uh, CSIs. Um, also looking at fingerprints. You know, we there's new technologies coming out. We want to stay on top of that, but we also want to always remember um, those things that help identify uh, who's been at a scene. And we don't want to, you know, get caught up in the sexy uh, disciplines of shooting reconstruction and bloodstain pattern analysis and forget about fingerprints and processing. So. To look at fingerprint comparisons we're working on on courses for fingerprint comparisons we're also looking at courses possibly on uh, latent fingerprint processing how do you incorporate once again photography uh, with forensic light sources with the different kinds of chemicals that are available to to develop latent fingerprints so that they can be documented and recorded and and used to identify somebody Nathan, you've also, uh, through Forensic Training Source, have arranged some classes along with Highlands Forensics. Mm -hmm. 
um, in conjunction with BAE Systems. Sure. Using Socket GXP, which is a software package out there using uh, uh, geospatial imagery, which, by the way, is what you're going to be getting also off of your drones if you start a drone program. Right. Um, well, you've been in talks with BAE. We're going to be setting up some other courses up in Reston, Virginia mm -hmm. from BAE going over their software, which will be at no cost. You just have to get your way there. Sure. And BAE sponsors the class for law enforcement professionals. And, uh, you know, Forensic Training Source has been a part of that as well, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of thing that's not, I mean, that's a tool that goes beyond forensics and crime scene investigation. That goes to preparedness on the part of government agencies to, to have the information that's available through a system like that to available to them at all times before something bad happens. And so um, it, it really is uh, an incredible resource. It's all about how you tell the story, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, and that program in particular, that's socket GXP, that is powerful. And it's something that can be used and leveraged by law enforcement agencies, government agencies to um, show, don't tell. Yeah, exactly. The visual Let's just see it. Everybody wants to see the technologies out there. Jurors want to see what happened. Mm -hmm. They want to see evidence. And this is an incredible way to put that all in perspective when you can look at an entire city and focus down into a single weapon in a parking lot, for example. Yeah. All in scale, all with actual photography, with real information. And so uh, emerging technology is always going to drive new new training. And, um, and we're always going to maintain the the high quality training that we have in those basic disciplines that are always going to be used by crime scene investigators. And a lot of that comes from the request from the practitioners in the field. It does. Yeah. They'll tell you what they need and you've always followed that. And, uh, I think that's an important thing. Sure. Well, we want to thank Nathan again. And, and thank you for having me. Yeah. Anytime. Uh, Jimmy and I are fortunate enough to be very good friends with Nathan. And, um, thank you for saying that. Yes. <laughs> We're actually sitting at his house right now, sipping bourbon as we do this. So we're going to be back. We will be back with Nathan on again, and uh, we will give him other training updates, and we'll talk about other topics in the field. And um, Jim? Again, just uh, thank you for spending the time with us uh, today. Uh, we look forward to our continued uh, dealings with Forensic Training Source and Forensic Training Foundation, and we look forward to that progress that you talk about as far as moving uh, both of those forward and remaining timely and current in uh, in all the training you provide. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you.